Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Michael Jr. That is me. With me, as always, a man whose verification on social media you can trust, Brandon Newman. Brandon, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, because it's non-existent, Mike. I don't want a gray check. I don't want a blue check. I- I- I'm thorough in these streets. Oh, man, it is. It's got verified to- in these streets. What am I saying? It's gotten exactly where we expected on Twitter very quickly with this man, Elon, who basically came out and said the other day, we're going to continue to do dumb things and try them. And if they don't work, do different things. As we have seen Twitter experiment with various degrees of verification that led us to yesterday already the thing that we said would happen happening. And this is in the comparative, like, easy place of sports where it is. Someone impersonating Adam Schefter, circulating news that the Raiders had parted ways with Josh McDaniels as their head coach. It was very much not ESPN's Adam Schefter, but rather (laughs) someone who had just paid for the new blue checkmark and decided to go do the thing that Ballsack Sports and other people have been doing to sports media for a while. And as we are coming up and finishing midterm elections right now, I am really glad that this started after so much of that began happening because, my God, what a terrifying slippery slope to hell a terrifying a terrifying slippery slope indeed one that if they knew the power that they had mike if they could create a fake fbi account a fake cia account uh but no but no we're we're orchestrating lebron trades from the lakers and uh yeah, and Josh and Josh McDaniel being fired from the Raiders. Which, like, again, I want to reiterate off the top because we are a podcast here at Gojo that you should download, subscribe, rate, and review, leave us a five star rating, and check us out on the DraftKings YouTube channel that is dedicated to finding yes. the actual truth and making sure we parse through and don't get got by the internet so that you don't get got by the internet. Because we said from day one we were going to be your timeline in your ears, and we're trying to show you yes. right now it's time to keep your head on a swivel because we saw plenty of people that are verified in the old way of verified that are supposed to be reliable media sources getting got by this when you're scrolling the timeline quick looking for news because damn it that's what they are going to attempt to do these new world blue check marks and as someone that's just a a man of the people and gullible as hell i'll be i'll be the one to to bring news to the to your attention just so mike can correct it but make sure you listen when mike corrects it because i'll come up here with some shit that is just not true on the internet Exactly, and we're going to try and parse that out and make sure that we figure it out because, man, oh, man, this is going to be a lot to keep track of. Uh, Really not looking forward to that, Brandon. Uh, Really looking forward to today's show, though. Um, We got a great one. We are excited. Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame's head football coach, is going to join us uh, fresh off. I say fresh off. It's a Thursday, so he's had some time to recover from their win over Clemson. uh, Talking about, I don't know. That was a big one. (laughs) It was. The, 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 the reverb of that one is strong. So we'll talk to Marcus about what it was like on the field after the Clemson win, what they've got coming up down the stretch of the season as Notre Dame is back and ranked in the latest round of the college football playoff poll. And 
finding a like-minded individual and understanding that you can start decorating for Christmas as soon as you damn well want. Marcus Freeman is a man who gets it. Oh. Uh, I am No, so he, he's a man who gets it, but he's also someone who is a, he knows what the people want, Mike. Like coaches, coaches never half-ass any idea. So when you hear of an idea that you don't agree with from a coach, it sounds more uh, more legitimate, more verified, if you will, than it ever has. So oh I, I, I'm a big, I'm a big Thanksgiving decoration guy, but Marcus Freeman got me thinking about skipping it. You know what? And let's, I hope, I hope everyone else gives him a chance. Hear him out. He's a great guy. We're excited to talk to him there. Um, we also have uh, a very interesting list that came out relative to NFL coaches and the history of the chocolate chip cookie that you will not want to miss because people saw the tweet going around yesterday and we've got a little added context to a particularly political chocolate chip cookie tweet that we want to get to. But in the meantime, Brandon... Um, the association kind of has the middle of the week right now during the NFL week where stuff happens and we kind of perk our ears up every now and then. Uh, first and foremost, I wanted to do a wellness check on you. LeBron James left last uh, last night's loss to the Clippers with what is now being billed as a groin injury that they're going to get some imaging done on today. Uh, the 2-9 and nine Lakers and an injured LeBron who had a hell of a game. Now they lost, but he had you know 30 points and a bunch of other good counting LeBron stats that came along with that. How are you feeling? How you feeling? You okay? Uh, yeah, actually, I'm okay because the Lakers are bad, anyways. What are they? Two and two, two in and a nine. number. Uh, they've won two games, two and nine. Yes. Uh, I feel like the same way the first two minutes or the first fifteen plays of a of a game is scripted for the NFL. Like, I feel like the beginning half of the season before Christmas for the NBA and for LeBron is already scripted. Like, they went through the trainers. They realized it's going to be a groin thing or he landed wrong. And as much as he wants calls from the refs for for when he gets fouled up, I think he knows how to take those fouls and knows how to extrapolate certain things to to be out for the next uh, X amount of games. I'm not worried about this, Mike, specifically, but I am starting to worry about LeBron's training on the offseason like he's spending all that money on his body and he's getting banged up in in November after the season just started I think maybe just do some box jumps maybe just stand on your roof and like jump down on some because it seems like he when he lands there's Brandon, an issue like Brandon. he's okay with jumping he's okay with shooting he's okay Brandon. with rebounding landing messes LeBron up he, Brandon he's old this is just what happens <laughs> when you're old He's 37 years old. Brandon, I was telling I was talking to someone You're 20. the other, I was talking to someone the other day. I have such an appreciation for people like our buddy Kyle Rudolph who's playing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers right now who gets up yes. and goes to work in a sport that's incredibly physical. But even for LeBron James, like I always say that the NBA is a, you know, physical league, it's a contact league, it's not a collision league. That's the difference between that and the NFL, right? But either way, think about what you've got to do for physical activity at this point. Like, I've got a half-hour warm-up when I go to the gym. I've got a foam roll every day just so my hips and back all can feel good enough to go and do all this stuff. And I am asked to do nothing dynamic on the other side of that. Like, I go and I get on the treadmill for a little bit. I push things in a straight line. I maybe mix in an Orange Theory every now and then or like a Pilates class. I'm not having to go out and cut and react to somebody else. 
else and be dynamic. And so I think about the amount of times that I have hurt myself in the gym just doing those things as a 30-something-year-old adult. And then I think, wow, what if Mm. I was still trying to get ready for the rigors of an entire season of a sport? And then that sport's at the highest level. Like, no wonder we see these guys getting... No wonder Julio Jones is never on the field consistently anymore. No wonder we worry about this with LeBron James more and more now. It's insane. That's why even Tom Brady playing quarterback and be able to do this not hurt is sort of insane because just by existing north of 30, you are at risk of injury if you're in an athletic setting. Yeah, what's the oldest kicker right now in the NFL? We used to always fantasize well, about – It used to be Adam uh, Vinatieri oh, just was, like sitting there. It was there. Vinatieri. Yeah, it was him yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, but I'll say this though, Mike, because as someone who doesn't get to the gym very often, I think uh, our youngest son is nine months old. Uh, you could probably use that as the last time I went to a gym. Um, so I do push-ups around the house. I was showing Carter how to do cartwheels yesterday. So I did, you know, I did about four or five Carter wheels. in a row, very athletic ones. You know how I'm surprisingly athletic for how big I am. Um, but I'm hurting now, Mike. Like I hurt on the other ends of that. I hurt on the other side of that. But Mike, the difference between you and I and LeBron James is. We don't spend millions of dollars on our body so that we can recover from those things. If anything, I spend I spend thousands of dollars on my body to to make it so I can't recover from those things by the things that I put in them. So like <laughs> I, I can understand me not being able to bounce back from inflation of the shoulders after doing some cartwheels. LeBron being able to recover from his groin from landing, but like that's it's what I'm saying. Mike. It's it, but it's I'm saying it's first off the notion of you comparing your cartwheels with your son to LeBron James is absolute chef's kiss moment. The Stugats is so strong in you, and I couldn't love it more. Um, <laughs> but no, Brandon, like it's, good cartwheels, Mike. At some really point, good. like it's the father time ad. Like I know he's got that running right now, but like it's it's like at some point you can spend all the money that you want on that you're not going to outrun just what happens by nature so fascinated to watch that with lebron uh he was not the only news in the association last night brandon uh yes so we got a bit of a curveball from the brooklyn nets who for so long had been linked to Ime Udoka after firing uh, Steve Nash, their former head coach everyone thought we had all the ports from woge that they were circling around uh, suspended Celtics head coach Ime Udoka, who was an assistant with the Nets uh, in the 2020-2021 season. And then we get the news. No, they're pulling the interim tag off Jacques Vaughn, who's been an assistant there for six years, and mm. making him the head coach with a deal that goes through the 2023-2024 season. Um, Jacques Vaughn was 2-2 two and two as the interim head coach. He won his first game as the head coach and had the cool moment with Kevin Durant after the game when the guys all gave him the game ball. They went out there and put it on the Knicks pretty enthusiastically. Kevin Durant's on a tear right now as far as his individual performance and I think has won 13 straight on his own against the New York Knicks. So that's very much a feels like a hammer and nail situation there right now. But Brandon... Or a personal thing for him. I, yeah, especially in that city. But, Brandon, this one was incredibly surprising to me just because we figured with the connection with what Ime Adoka had put on tape last year and the fact that Jock Vaughn had been a candidate for this job before the Steve Nash hiring and was passed over for this, we thought that opportunity with this organization may have come and gone. And it right. sounds like I saw reports from Mark Stein, and, and uh, I think it was Mark Stein who put it in his sub stack that there were, I think, people behind the scenes that were reportedly 
trying to persuade the Nets to not go after Ime Udoka, considering they're still dealing with the suspension to Kyrie Irving in their organization right now. There's been so much noise there. This felt like the first thing that was about basketball in a while that just allowed it to go be basketball on the court for a little bit for this really? team. Really? I, I, I hear you. I thought possibly it could be about basketball because of just how decorated uh, Vaughn is. But it feels it feels more like it's PR. It feels more like the, the like like when Lovey Smith was hired to take over the Texans. It felt like they were pressured into making the right decision. And that's you know what? That's a fair read of the situation, and I shouldn't give the Nets that much credit because unfortunately that's probably what it is. And all of it feels like it's still shuffling deck chairs in the Titanic for right now, right? Because saying this, that this would actually be some indication of calm on the way, which you're right, it doesn't seem like... It seems like the Nets are constantly trying to battle against the notion that they are in control of whatever is happening with their organization. Mm. And I think that's... You know, we saw even in the reports about this that, like... I think I saw a report from Sean Marks or one of the people at the top of uh, the organization saying this was not Kevin Durant's decision because so many people had been talking about what Kevin Durant wanted as far as the coach. And you've mm-hmm. got this situation with Kyrie Irving, which we'll get to in a second. And so, yeah, this does not seem like a franchise that necessarily is in control of things right now. But this is one where, as we talk about someone's coaching bona fide so much that's been the conversation this week I think there's a lot of people rightly genuinely excited for Jacques Vaughn who seems to have been a really well-respected assistant around there um did a couple of seasons as the head coach uh two plus seasons as a head coach for the Orlando Magic uh from 2012 to 2015 had been the interim head coach um for about 10 games during the 1920 season so you know Yep. has been building towards this, especially Nets. with this franchise. Like He's been with the Nets through yeah. the transition from what they were into who they are now. And so on the other side of this, it's certainly interesting with that. But Brandon, the other part of this is this is all circling around whenever Kyrie Irving's return happens to the NBA. And because this is the next source of thing they're going to have to deal with right when Kyrie gets back in front of the media again he's currently suspended he has to address the media he's going to get back on the court and what that's going to look and sound like because the Nets introduced um, some terms to Kyrie's reinstatement into the league they said that there are six steps for Kyrie Irving uh, after we saw that Instagram apology last week that includes uh, apologizing for the tweet and condemning it. He did that on Instagram. The Nets want him to apologize verbally while meeting with the media. He agreed to donate $500,000 to anti-hate causes. Um, he also has to undergo sensitivity training, anti-Semitic training, meet with Jewish leaders, and meet with Nets owner Joe Sy. He also had a conversation with uh, NBA commissioner Adam Silver. And Brandon, I saw a lot of people uh, reacting to this because, again, I think everything's going to draw a pretty strong reaction with Kyrie Irving at this point. This has become a lightning rod conversation for a lot of reasons that you know we've dealt with on this podcast. Right. But I think I'm interested in the concept of what's happening here because right now we've seen Jalen Brown come out as someone who's a part of the Players Association talking about, I think we're going to appeal this suspension and the way that this is being laid out for his return because it's been pointed out that according to him that there is no um, there's no guideline that addresses social media posts in the NBA's collective bargaining agreement. So often these punishments go back to stuff like that. But Brandon, 
in a world where we've seen more and more outcry from the public when athletes do things and then are getting ready for the return to play. When we talk about a notion of second chances or someone's contrition and why they should be allowed back on a court other than their overwhelming physical gifts, one of the cries from the public has been transparency about the work that's being done, right? What is someone doing in order to find their way back to the court? And I think it's something interesting to consider because what the Nets are essentially trying to do here is show their work. And I think it's show their work to fans who might feel like they were hurt, show their work certainly to prospective advertisers who look at this situation and feel like they've got to back away from this. We know Kyrie Irving himself has dealt with some setbacks on that front as well with Nike and his partnerships based on what's gone on with this. And so I think it's interesting to consider, one, this as something we see more organizations do. I mean, listen, I want to you know separate very clearly the two things going on here. But when we look at Deshaun Watson, who's getting ready to come back to the NFL in just a couple of weeks after an 11-game suspension, we hear all the time from teams about how we're creating environments for this player to come in here and be you know, rehabilitated and do better. And we never actually hear about or see any of that and what's going on. And we never get updates on that. And there's not a lot of detail in the way that those things are administered publicly. And I look at this and I go, all right, if you were able to take this idea and transpose it into more of those areas when it says, no, if this player is going to be a part of our team after, in those cases, committing some sort of very heinous off-the-court crime or being accused to that or being punished for that by the league, these are going to be the things that we as an organization need to see in order to feel comfortable having them back in our locker room environment as a face and as a part of our team. I think that's something that could be very worthwhile. I do just wonder, like in this case with uh, what Jalen Brown mentioned, is what is a player's association going to allow for when it comes to punishments that are usually collectively bargained and how much are they going to push back? Yeah, Mike, I think that's important because as much as these companies and leagues like to try to use these individual instances and people and players and actors as uh, kind of the example, like the lead by example, like this is, this is what happens if you tweet something that is against our policy of how players should conduct themselves in, in public. And and Brandon, I just want to say all to of that, these things. To, that I just are want happening. to say to I just want to say to that standpoint. I want to very much you know Please. remove yeah. that you know conversation about Deshaun Watson and others. I'm pulling this out of this particular of situation that we can address, and I'm not trying to create false equivalencies or anything like that. I'm merely taking this concept and trying to apply it elsewhere. Now we can talk about how this applies to Kyrie Irving specifically in this case, because I know there's been a lot of right. people that have been reacting to that. So I just wanted to make that abundantly yes. clear for that's, people think that think I'm because this is what happens when you've got suspensions involved in this stuff is we start to do the comparative justice thing, and I don't want to do that right now. I'm looking right. at that part of the process in particular. So I'm sorry for interrupting you. I just wanted to make that abundantly clear. No, thank you for doing so because I'm I'm trying to uh, articulate the fact that what Jalen Brown is bringing up is that this is a solution for Kyrie, someone who is a habitual line stepper when it comes to the gray areas of what athletes are allowed to do off the court, right? And it's not I'm not talking about the vaccine mandates, uh, but more so of how he sees 
the job, right, Mike, the, and, and, and the, the punishment that comes along with it. Like, I think one of the things that are important to notice is, like, one of his causes stipulations is that that 500K to uh, to causes against anti-hate, like, that's one that's – a, that's a percentage of one game for Kyrie to play, right? So I think all that stuff matters and, and variable when it comes to w- what actual punishment is going through right now. But my thing is – there's no, there still doesn't seem to be a a guidelines or stipulations or clauses for when this happens again, when someone, and and obviously it doesn't happen well, frequently enough, but it needs to be. There's some kind of guidelines and stipulations need to be put in place. What you're so talking about when is these precedent. things happen to a Kyrie Irving. Yeah, you're yes, talking about yes. creating Wait, a like precedent, we need to, we which need is this what to be consistent. Players, well, players associations exist to protect precedent. They exist to protect the rights of players from leagues who would try to impose things in a one-time basis that end up affecting a larger, broader swath of players. And what you're talking about is just that. Right. It's that is, and and that's why I. I to an extent, I understand what Jalen Brown and what someone from a players association would do anytime there is a league that comes in and tries to punish to a certain extent. And we've seen this in the NFL with some you know, of, you know, of the things that we talked about here, some of the other where you come in and even Deshaun Watson's suspension, they pointed to precedent as far as what there had been suspensions for in similar situations beforehand and how that language was in the collective bargaining agreement. So you're absolutely right about that. That's what this is protecting against. Well, and I, and I, but I need that protection because of the sensitivity that surrounds how black players are, and I'm trying to find a better word, but policed when it comes to infractions to whatever they're supposed to be doing as, as, as employees of the NBA, Mike. And that's why I want there to be a little bit more guidelines so that we can have some consistency with the punishments when they come out. Because now, because Kyrie is who Kyrie is, it feels like he's being punished for a multitude of things. Well, Which he is, it's, but, but is it all tied to the tweet? Well, this is, I think, tied to the fact that... Is it all that- tied to the, the, non, the not, not apologizing for the tweet? Yes, in short, yes, because Kyrie has also demonstrated himself in the past to be someone that has been unreliable in other areas or espoused views that kind of led down to this road. Like all of Kyrie Irving's public conspiracy talk, all of him missing time, missing games for various things, the vaccine conversation around him and the way he's presented himself publicly. I think, yes, all of that works its way into where you would look at an I'm sorry and say, all right, how am I supposed to believe that at this point based on your track record and based on what this has done and affected publicly here? Because this is also happening because Kyrie Irving is good enough to return to play, right? Like if Mm -hmm. Kyrie Irving, you know, like, because, and again, I'm not equating the two things, but as far as infractions involving anti-Semitism, Myers Leonard is always the other name that comes to mind. And he's not playing basketball anymore yes. and likely is not going to be playing basketball mm-hmm. again in the NBA because he's not as good at basketball as Kyrie Irving was. Now, his was also you know an anti-Semitic slur uttered in public, and there's you know a certain severity to that that also exists. But I'm not down. But I don't want to downplay the severity of what Kyrie Irving did because it is very serious, and True. we are right to take this seriously with the influence that he has. 
has, but this is all a conversation because they, at some point, do want him back still enough as a basketball player to go through all of this, right? Like, think about the net. The other read of this is that the Nets laying this out are doing so to make it clear enough to fans and advertisers and everyone else who can see this that, you know, one, maybe there's some of that team, like, hey, we want to feel like we're in control, but two, we are paying this guy a lot of money to be great at basketball, and we'd still like to recoup some of that great at basketball because we believe that's there, or else they wouldn't jump through all these hoops. They would have just released him like so many people called for them to do in the first place. Yeah, and that's the one that they – that's talking about showing your work. That's one of those moves that, like, it's, it's very clear uh, how people feel about certain things. Where with this, Mike, even as everything's laid out, there's no way that people can – check up on the clauses that are for Kyrie's reinstatement. Like, I think there is a realistic – there's a reality to the fact that with all this stuff laid out and as many people are upset or not upset, thinking there should be more or less uh, for Kyrie to get reinstated back with the Nets and back in the NBA, like most things, Mike, like when you get punished in, in, in the criminal court system – he's probably going to get off on good behavior. Like, th this is probably not going to be as severe as it looks on paper, but we hope that the education is severe for Kyrie. Well, and, and like, I don't think, like, again, outside of the fine, which, remember, that was something that they threw out there beforehand that the group that they were trying to give the right. money to actually denied because Kyrie Irving was not contrite in public after the Nets tried to just trot that out. That was supposed to be the original punishment. And I think that's another part of this, Brandon, is this happened because Kyrie Irving didn't just come out and say, hey, I'm sorry, my bad to begin with. I shouldn't have said and done this and shown that contrition in public. They got defiance. And so now in the Nets' eyes, they've got to, again, the burden of proof is on them to say, hey, no, this guy really means it. And this is how we're going to show you that he means it and so I, I yeah so I, I just I look at this and again I don't want to get too caught up on the Kyrie portion of this because I think at this point people feel so strongly about the Kyrie thing for reasons I don't really want to dive into on here because a lot of this I think boils back to some people not looking at what Kyrie said as all that wrong or all that harmful and I mm. just think it is wrong and harmful right. and so I don't want to I don't want to do that on here it's wrong and harmful and I think punishing it is understandable and I think because of the way he went about it we got to this point now where I look at this idea of punishment and I wonder mm -hmm. could this format be closer to what we've all been asking for as a public to when an athlete has an infraction away from the court, away from the field, you know, a crime, something like this, where we're all looking and wondering, all right, does this person really think or feel or has done anything differently to show there can go back out there on the court and we as a public can look at this and feel a little less conflicted ourselves because we feel like this person's done the work. This might be something closer to what we could see from more organizations going forward depending on how that's received by players association. So a lot to digest there. I just I think it's interesting because right now it feels so different uh, than what we're used to. I know other things have involved this before, but again, high-profile case and even more strict laid-out terms here that make this uh, something to consider. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we are going to give you something to consider in the form of Notre Dame's head football coach, Marcus Freeman, who's going to stop by and chat with us next. 
Growing up playing sports, I learned really quickly that how you do the little things is how you're going to do everything. That's why coaches always harped on us about having our hand behind the line on sprints or picking up our locker because that was going to directly translate to critical moments on the field, making sure we're lined up right, taking the right steps so we can go out there and execute and win ball games. Small actions can have big benefits, just like how taking care of your gut can support your entire body's health. That's where our friends at Seed come into play. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is going to benefit your gut, skin, and heart health in just two little capsules a day. I just got my welcome kit and started taking Seed's DSO-1 myself and I'm loving it. I love the convenience of being able to have it in the cabinet with my other supplements because you don't need to worry about refrigerating it and I love the free travel vial that comes along with it. I'm constantly on the road and so being able to take DSO-1 with me on the go is huge for my lifestyle here. I'll tell you what else I love is the fact that it's backed by science. DSO-1 was developed in collaboration with Seed Scientific Board and based on their foundational work in probiotics and the microbiome and with new clinical trials and breakthrough research published in top scientific journals, Seed's probiotic research, development, and innovation programs make DSO-1 a product you can trust. And it's great in convenience, too. Probiotics and prebiotics work best when they're used consistently, just like any other routine health habit. And Seed's subscription service is going to easily help build DSO-1 into your routine, again, with no refrigeration required. So, trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash gojo and use code 25gojo to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash gojo, code 25gojo. Coach, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask at this point because I feel like every time we talk, what's the candy jar situation in the office right now? You're coming off Halloween here. We've turned holiday seasons. Where are we at? I was just asked yesterday by your father. Um, it's a little mixture of some Halloween candy. I'm looking right behind. You know, we do have candy corn, um, which I hear you're a fan of. But I have to mix. I have to mix candy corn and M and M's or candy corn and peanuts. Like I can't do it by itself. And then uh, we got some. You know, I always got my Starburst and Jolly Ranchers, a couple of rich chocolate, rich people chocolate, and then it looks like some Sour Patch Kids over there. So a little bit of everything, man. Hey, listen, Coach. You've said you've said in a lot of aspects this week, this season, consistency and adhering to the process. So I feel like if the rich people chocolate all of a sudden left, I'd be very worried about you. <laughs> I'll keep that here for you and, and Smitty. When it, she she's a huge fan, so uh, when she comes up here, we'll make sure we keep that for her. Now, Coach, you mentioned you got the you got the candy corn in there, which I appreciate. I am a candy corn purist, which I know makes me a little bit of a weirdo, but you know, everyone's got their thing. <laughs> I was wondering for you, have you started decorating? Like, do you guys and your family start to throw up holiday decorations now? Are you a big Thanksgiving guy? Like, where do you fall on the the holiday lines of demarcation here? You know what? We're a Halloween, and then we kind of get into Christmas, which I know is a huge no-no. You can't skip over Thanksgiving, but we don't do Thanksgiving decorations. It's like Halloween candy and we had Halloween decorations in here and then my wife came in here the other day and took down the decorations but kept the candy and I think the next year you'll look up and there'll be Christmas decorations all over this place. Uh, see, Coach, I'm with you on that. I'm a guy that thinks once you hit November after Halloween, you can start to throw the Christmas stuff up because, and, well, and for your for you, Coach, you've been in football a long time as a player and now as a coach. I feel like the relationship with Thanksgiving is a little bit different as a football player and a football coach because you usually always work in, you're kind of around the team, and it's it's a day. It's not a holiday season. It's just a day. 
Yeah, exactly. You, you, we definitely celebrate Thanksgiving Day, but as you said, that's just a that's usually just a day and a meal. You know, we're usually practicing that morning. We'll have a Thanksgiving meal together, and then here at Notre Dame, we're flying out on Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, that's true. You guys get set to uh, to head out to Southern Cal. So, all right, Coach. Nice to meet a like minded individual on the uh, Christmas <laughs> decoration front. Here, it's uh, it's always good to meet people that understand the finer things in life. But, um, <laughs> Coach. Uh, walk me through how you're feeling right now, coming off the the biggest win of your tenure here as a head coach this past weekend against Clemson. What's it been like in the couple days since? Well, the reality is wins are short-lived around here, you know, and, and uh, you know, we're getting ready for a Navy team and a triple option and a completely different offense. Um, you know, as I think back to Saturday, what a special night. Um it was really a, an unbelievable experience. The, you know, you're really happy with the way your team played. Um, we really played well in all three phases. Um, and then to do it at home, um, to do it against a team like Clemson and to have your fans rush the field, it was a, an extremely special night that you wish you would appreciate it more and bottle it up. But, you know, as I said, wins are short-lived. Losses seem like they last forever around here, but wins are short-lived and we got to move forward for Navy. Coach, was that had you been a part of a field storming before? Had you been in, like as a player or a coach where the field had been stormed? You know what? I was asking Laurenitis, who I played with at college, about that. He said the '06 game, Ohio State Michigan, was one versus two, and they stormed the field. I don't remember that as a player. I remember being a recruit at Ohio State in 2002, and uh, they won. They beat Michigan to go to the national championship, and I remember. Um, storming the field, kind of, kind of storming the field, kind of saying like, "Where, what the heck's going on?" But um, nothing was like obviously that moment this past Saturday. That was unique and one that's just you'll remember forever. Did you see anything wild when you were down there on the field? I'm sure it felt like stuff was coming at you a thousand miles an hour. You got fans in the interview with you. Was there anything that stuck out to you as far as what you saw from the fans on the field? Well, I remember. Um, the police were saying, hey, they're going to storm the field. And I'm like, okay, all right, it isn't a big deal. And we run in the middle of the field, and I can see the fans a little bit, talk to Coach Sweeney for a while, and then we're getting ready to do the interview, and I can just feel people pushing and pushing. And, I, like, before, like, you're, there's a little a delay before the interview starts, and I'm, like, yelling at kids, like, get back, get back, and nobody's listening. And then we do the interview, which was awesome, and then, as we're getting finished with the interview, I'm like, I tell the police, I said, I want to, let's, let's enjoy this. I want to stay down here. Let's go sing the alma mater. They're like, no, we need to get out. Like, let's sing. Let's go over and sing the alma mater. About halfway through it, I'm like, get me out of here. And I'm like holding on to the, the belt of the police officer and they're pushing people trying to get me out of there. And uh, it, it can be kind of scary, you know, even for a guy like me um, with police security man it, it became a little bit claustrophobic but i couldn't imagine if i was just out there with no help man it, it's it can be a little while and it took forever for our players to get back into the locker room forever who was the last guy back in the locker room after all that who was out celebrating the win the hardest well the one i noticed was ben morrison because uh <laughs> usually after games i call up one guy on offense and one guy on defense and we called up michael mayer and he said a couple words and i'm like let's bring up the young guy benjamin morrison and everybody's looking around and he's nowhere to be found and i'm like okay i guess we're gonna get into the prayer and next you know we're about to go into the prayer um here he comes walking in and i'll start ripping his tail right in the middle of the locker room like we're waiting on you and this is your moment but it was uh 
those are things that are really cool, man. And I'm sure he was uh, on cloud nine. Uh, I, I can't even I can't even imagine. And, and there was a lot of stuff like that to celebrate. Benjamin, uh, like you said, was incredible. Michael has another record-setting performance. I know for you, as soon as the game was over, saw a lot being made. You're a football guy. You go and start grinding the tape right away. You want to go back and watch all that. So as you're sitting there in that dark room watching tape after the game, what jumped out to you as far as the things you really liked and saw from your team on that second watch after you had just gone through it live? Yeah, it was. Uh, it took a little while. My wife came up with the kids, and uh, I think she wanted to celebrate uh, and hang out a little bit. And I told her, "Hey, you got to get the kids out of here, and I need to kind of watch some film. And really, the quicker I can watch this film, the quicker I can get home, and then we can celebrate at home." But um, watching it, you know, the things on offense that I really liked is that we. I think we only have one three and out, and the ability to sustain drives and to run the ball and really control the tempo and the time management of the game was was huge. And and that's something that we knew going into the game we had to do. Defensively, the ability, we challenged our guys defensively. We had to be able to stop the runs or the quick game, the quick passing game on the perimeter. And I loved what I saw early in the game um, from our defense and stopping the perimeter offense that they had. And so, and then obviously the, the punt block to start it off, that was huge. That was a, a huge play for us. And and the sustained urgency that we had, like that was a challenge. It wasn't, I didn't want urgency to start the game. It was endless urgency, it never stopped. And um, I thought until the, the final, you know, moments ticked down that our team and our program played with urgency. It, it was really impressive. By the way, you mentioned the punt block. What's Brian Mason feeding those kids over there in the special <laughs> teams room? Six punt blocks on the year now. It, it's been a weapon. Like, how has that become something that's so consistent? I feel like we can count on something game changing in special teams almost every week from you guys. Yeah, you know, people would think that you got six punt blocks like you're you're bringing the house, and we don't. We try to match the number of guys they have protecting the punter with rushers and find different ways to get those guys back to those protecting those guys that are protecting a punter. Um, but then once you're back there, it's about execution. You know, the one, the, the punt block we had, they had three guys protecting. We had three guys rushing, but our guys were able to execute and find the little gaps that are back there and, and get their hands on the ball. But I think he must be having something going on um, outside the meetings that I'm in where these guys must be getting food or something. I don't know what it is, but they're hungry because we've had a couple guys block multiple punts. You know, it's not the same guy. It's a couple guys that are blocking punts, and uh, I think it's a challenge and a competition within that pump block unit. Yeah, there we go. All right, there's something going on there. We'll get. We'll. You can leave the investigative journalism to us. We'll get going on what's going on behind closed doors. Uh, in those special teams meetings. Coach, the other thing I feel like that's going to become like a little bit of folklore coming out of this game, I saw Tommy Reese, your offensive coordinator, doing the interview where he talked about going down to the field to celebrate with those guys and looked over at Jared Parker and said, if we got to run another play before I get down there, just call duo. Just go out there <laughs> and keep running that football. Like, What was that like for you, that moment seeing Tommy down there getting to celebrate with Drew and kind of being a part of that? 
I didn't get a chance to see it. Um, I heard about it. You know, he had said over the headset, Coach, can I come down? I'm like, yeah, come down. I said, listen, you better hurry up, you know, because I don't know how long the defense will be on the field. And right when he said that, we went into a TV timeout. I said, all right, you at least got two minutes and 30 seconds. Hurry on down. And uh, I guess he made it down in order to, uh, before Jared had to call any plays. But, you know, I did hear about those moments um, with him and Drew and him and Mayer and, and you know, as I told the media the other day, that's a reflection of the relationship he has with, you know, Drew Pine. And one week, it's uh, the, the media is talking about how Tommy's ripping Drew and, and yelling at him through a headset or telephone. The next minute, we're talking about how they embrace. And that's what I want from our coaches and our players. That's a real relationship. And uh, anybody that's been in a relationship understands it's not always great and not always rough, but it's real and authentic. And, and that's what I hope was a reflection of that moment with those two. And coach, with Tommy, with a lot of your coaching staff, there's been up and downs in this season. There's been a lot of noise from the outside world about people making comments about the staff. Is that something you've had to address at all? Have you guys been able to kind of block that out internally? You know, that's my message to these guys is that you have to block out the noise. You have to, you know, it can be so loud. And uh, but ultimately, we control the volume. Right. You don't have to read stuff. You don't have to listen to that. But when you're with me, you understand that you got a head coach that has your back. But um, I'm also going to push our staff to, to be better. We have to be better. And, and it's never how you want it. Right. And that it's never um, as good or as bad as, as maybe you see it or others will see it. Um, but as long as we stay consistent um, in our belief. Right. This road to where we want to go in life, this road at and where we want to go this season is not always as we foresee it on the front end. And I think anybody that's that's achieved success can look back and say, thank God we didn't make split decisions based off of one game or one moment. You know, this is an up and down road, but we have to continue to traject in a, a upward trend. And uh, that's what we want to do. And that's what I think we're doing right now. Uh, it's definitely happening along the lines of scrimmage. Coach, you said at the beginning of the season, you know, this is a a unit and a team that's led by what goes on in the trenches, but how impressed have you been with the way the offensive lines come together and really become the identity for this team? It's been really impressive, you know, to see five guys um, really from week two, because Jarrett Patterson missed week one, but really five guys in there and, and the consistency and the cohesiveness of that unit of coach Harry Heaston, our offensive line coach has done a tremendous job, but they're playing with so much confidence. I think early in the year, we we're trying to figure out, I knew I wanted to be an O-line, D-line driven program. I wanted to be able to run the ball, but we were still trying to figure out what was going to be the best plan for our offense. And um, it's taken some time. It's taken some losses. It's taken some ups and downs to say, okay, this is where our strengths are at this year. And and that's the challenge of any coaches to you can have a vision, but you got to understand what's the strength of your team. And um, you can be so bullheaded that you're trying to do something that might not be a strength. But our strength right now is our O-line and our running backs and the ability to run the ball. Um, and then for our quarterback to take advantage of the, the, the easy access throws that we're able to get. And then in the other strength is obviously we got a tight end. It's not too bad that we can throw the ball up and he can make a, a lot of plays. So that's kind of our strength right now offensively. Yeah, uh, Coach, Michael Mayer is one of the guys. So I also heard from a little birdie, a.k.a. the uh, the interview that you did with my father and Stu Gotts, that apparently you called that touchdown to Michael Mayer. Is that true? I, I might have encouraged it. I don't know if I called it. I told <laughs> Coach Reese that, hey, man, listen, let's throw a pop pass. Let's try to throw a pop pass to Mayer. And, and 
he was as surprised as anybody else. And, uh, you know, he was like, no, let's just keep running. I said, okay, good. Let's run it. You feel good about running the ball. And then right after we ran it again, he said, you sure I could throw the pop pass? And I'm like, sure, whatever. I don't know the play call, but it probably is going to work if you throw something to Mayer. Um, and so he called a great play, a great formation. Like, it's easy to say throw the ball here, right? That's that's the easy thing for me to do. But for Coach Reese to call that formation, you snuck Michael Mayer in the backfield and leaked him out, and he was open, wide open. Um, what a great job and a great execution by that offensive staff. Coach, what stuck out to you about Michael Mayer behind the scenes? Like, I remember early in the season something that I just noticed as an outsider. When Drew was first inserted and there were some struggles going on with the passing game on offense, a ball sailed over uh, over Michael Mayer's head, and he was the first person running over to Drew on the sideline, kind of putting an arm around him. He's a guy that has so much ahead of him, is going to be such a great NFL player, and has rewritten these record books who could have looked at this and thought, oh man, my offensive season might take a hit because of how we're producing right now. And that just really struck me as far as a guy who really seemed to get what he meant to this team as a leader. What's he been like behind the scenes for you guys as there have been some ups and downs in this season? He's been the true definition of a captain and uh, a guy that, yes, we know is is probably one of the most talented players, but the hardest worker, um, a great vocal leader for your program. Um, he sets the example. He not only is the example, he sets it for others. And uh, he's been a, an awesome leader and captain for this football program. And uh, he, he's exceeded expectation as, as hard as it is to say that. Um, he's exceeded expectation. He continues to get better and better. What was that message from him and the other leaders of the team when this season did hit some turbulence? Because I, I've talked about from the outside, besides the freshmen on this team, the rest of the guys had never done anything but win double-digit games in their Notre Dame career. There hadn't been a lot of that kind of turbulence as of late. So how did you see those guys manage that internally in that locker room? Well, I think it was their ability to really just uh, stay together, um, trust each other, uh, you know, continue to believe in, in the things that, you know, we were preaching as a coaching staff, but also the ability to say we have to enhance. We can't just trust the process. We have to fix it and, and to really put in that intentional work and block out the noise. It's easy um, to be a leader when things are going well, but I challenge those guys when things aren't going so well, that's when our leadership will show and, uh, They've done a great job of continuing to, to lead through the good and the bad. Coach, what's the biggest thing for you between? You mentioned challenging everything and, and elevating that standard. What's the biggest thing for you in year one as a head coach that from week one until now you feel like you've gotten a better handle on or, or feel like you're doing in a better way now? Well, I think the biggest thing is, as I said earlier, is that understand that the vision you have before the season starts, it's never going to be like that. And when we imagine being national champions or we imagine the success that we're going to have, you don't imagine some of those difficult moments that you have, but the ability to handle them, the ability to be a leader when things aren't going well, um, and the ability to know where you're going. I know where this program's going. I've always known where this program's going. Did I know exactly how we were going to get there? No. Did I think it was going to be um, at a point that you've lost three games this season? No, but you know what? It doesn't mean that we can't get to where we want to go, but that road isn't as smooth as we always foresee it. Um, the ability to really manage during those those ups and downs is what real leadership means, and uh, I'm learning every day what it means to lead, and especially at a place like this. 
Coach, you mentioned it's Navy week. You have a lot of familiarity with them from playing in the American against them when you were at Cincinnati as a coach, now at Notre Dame. What's the message to this team this week against Navy and really for the next couple of weeks as now you don't get opponents with a number attached to their name on the left-hand side? These aren't the big, high-profile, ranked matchups that everyone could maybe naturally get up for. Well, I think it, the, the message will continue to be the same that it's been. It's never been about the opponents, about it's been about us and our execution and our improvement. And, you know, you look at the Marshall game, the Stanford games, even some of those games we won, it's, it's, a lot of it has been about us and, and our mistakes or our, you know, execution of the game plan. And, and that's what it will be this week. We're going to have to make sure that we're ready to go. Uh, we prepare the right way. And then we go out Saturday and we play to our standard of Notre Dame football. Because when we do, we can beat any team in the country. But when we don't, we can lose any team in the country. And we have to make sure that we are really dictating the outcome by the way we perform. Awesome, Coach. Uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, always appreciate you giving us some time and catching up here. I look forward to seeing the Christmas decorations up in your uh, office the next time we talk. All right, Mike. Look forward to seeing you South Bend soon, brother. Absolutely. Thanks, Coach. Thank you. Sound the trumpets. It's horse racing time. So saddle up for the action with DK Horse, an official DraftKings affiliate. Right now, new customers who download the DK Horse app can get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250. Just deposit $25 or more and complete the playthrough requirement. Wager on your favorite horses, then watch the races live right in the app. Download the DK Horse app now. New customers get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250 when they opt in with code GOLIT. Only on the DK Horse app. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER, 18+, plus in certain states, to open or access an account and resident of a state where DK Horse is available. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. One per new customer. Match calculated on first deposit up to a maximum of $250. Deposit requires two-time playthrough of settled wager within 168 hours. Bonus released in $25 increments. Deposit and eligibility restrictions apply. See terms at dkhorse.com. All right, Brandon, nothing left to it but to do it. The question that people all want to know the answer to, do you know what time it is? You know I do, Mike. You know I'm on my history lesson shit right now. So with that, I said a hip-hop, the hippie to the hippie to hop. Mm. I said a hip-hop, the hippie to the hippie to hip-hop that don't... I know, Brand. It starts a hip hop, a hip to the hip, a hip hip hop, and okay, you don't okay, stop okay. the rock to the bang bang boogie. Say up, okay, chuck okay, the boogie to the yeah. yeah. You got me, you got me. Okay. A hip hop, a hippie to the hippie to hop. Oh, what'd you say again? A hip hop, <laughs> a hippie to the hippie to hip hip hop, and you don't a stop the, the rock and the bang bang boogie. Say up, chuck the boogie to the bang bang boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie beat. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and Mike, we're going to try to move your feet. See, I am Brother Brandon. I'd like to say hello to the black and the white, the red and the brown, the purple and yellow. But first, I got to bang, bang, the boogie to the boogie. Say up, jump the boogie, then duck, duck, boogie. Let's rock. You don't stop. Rock the rhythm that this, that, and the third. Pull the ripcord! As, as, <laughs> the parachute fly. as always, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, and review. Go to wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. <laughs> as, Bas- as Brandon absolutely 
took the Sugar Hill Gang out behind a woodshed. Hey, and they deserve it. I don't want to. I don't want to shit on the 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 start the founders, but if you do your research, that was a bunch of plagiarism left and right. But it was the first rap song to make Billboard charts. The first <laughs> Billboard Top 100. First time the rap song was on the Billboard charts. 1979 Sugar Hill Gang. Um, y'all know that song. About 17 minutes long, the real version. I just tried to force my way through. Yeah, you, uh, y'all, y'all know that song. Brandon first. clearly doesn't. <laughs> um, I do. I, I do when I hear it, Mike. I do. And don't get me started, Mike, because we got we to gotta ask more questions. You, I'm going to save an episode, but the fact that you said the first rap song you heard was in 2009, or no, 2002, we got some questions. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I was I was a little white kid from the suburbs who wasn't exposed to a lot of other things outside my small little bubble. Two thousand and nine, Mike. No, it wasn't. You have heard. I'm, no, we're it go wasn't. A list. It was, I got a bunch it, of reps. Brandon, it wasn't two thousand nine. It was well before that. Yeah, it was two thousand and two. But I I I was, I was doing some research and thinking of other big songs that you've because you I know you do you're a smart guy. You have done your research and you went back and like learned all the things. But we gonna we can, we have more to talk about. All right, Brandon. Well, in the meantime, let's talk about this before we get to that. Um, <laughs> and this is Brett Favre just can't stop doing terrible things. Part I don't even know anymore. Um, so, yeah. Brett Favre, uh, last time on Dragon Ball Z, was implicated in a case of massive Mississippi welfare fraud. Um, He was implicated in an organization that was accused of defrauding the Mississippi welfare system to the tune of millions of dollars. I think the number was about $77 million, to which Brett Favre was implicated in around $5 million of that. In that case, it was redirecting funds towards the construction of a volleyball facility at Southern Mississippi, his alma mater, where his daughter went and played volleyball. That was the source and the subject of a lot of last time. Um, a woman that he or a person that he had been working with in that process was a part of the group that was actually criminally charged for misdirecting and redirecting these funds away from Mississippi welfare. Brett Favre was not charged. He is not at risk of doing any jail time, but there have been damning text messages that show this guy knew he was doing something wrong in where he was helping get this money from. Fast forward to now, uh, Brett Favre, according to an ESPN report, has apparently also been linked to financially backing two drug companies that allegedly overstate the effectiveness of their concussion drugs and their conf- and their connection to the NFL. Now, Brandon, the levels to this are staggering because he also apparently um, helped back these funds, pumping some of his own money, and then also trying to redirect some of these same sort of funds that were coming his way towards these concussion drugs, one of which was a nasal spray that was designed to treat concussions, and the other a cream to help uh. limit or prevent concussions. And yes, Brandon, that groan is the appropriate response. A cream? A cream. A, the appropriate response as this man continues to descend further and further into villainy. Yes, Mike. Yes, he is, he is crossed over. We are hearing the reports. We are now, it's like the, um, you, ever, you know Pennyworth is? Pennyworth's a, a show on HBO that's like, uh, the beginning of Alfred mm-hmm. as Batman's butler, like Alfred as a child, so how special he was growing up. Like this is the origin story of Brett Favre, the villain. 
Like, I think from here on out, we should expect nothing but this type of news where Brett Favre doesn't care about people. He cares about money and using people to get to more money. And using and putting that money in really bad places. Like, now, I won't say that the Mississippi volleyball thing is, but here, that he also reportedly helped secure $2 million in funding for these drug companies from the same Mississippi nonprofit that he used to help fund that college volleyball thing that came from the money that was supposed to be going to people on welfare in one of the poorest states in the country. And they also, Brandon, apparently on the documents here, Van Landingham is the PhD in neuroscience who is the person actually involved in making these reported concussion drugs, tried to state on the documents Ooh. that they were sending out to, profes- uh, to potential investors, overstating the effectiveness, also listing under key advisory members and associates, Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer, Jeff Miller, the NFL's executive vice president of health and safety, and Brian Hainline, the NCAA's chief medical officer uh both of those groups the nfl and the ncaa reached out to espn and said none of these people were provided any resources or funding to the company and are unaware of any samples that were also reportedly sent to the team so they all promptly sent this dude back to the student section you can go and read the sputtering response of this person who essentially claims to not remember if they sent samples to all of these places and says that we weren't saying they were associated we were just saying that we had been in contact with them it is all such a not complete nonsense burger and a farce from these people and it's another reminder this is someone Brett Favre looked at and said oh no this is a place to not only park some of my money but to park some of other people's money to fund these nonsensical ideas I mean they're not nonsensical Mike they're they're, pre- they're not real. I mean, they're predatory. They're poster child. Yeah, they're they're somewhat predatory. Well, like, yeah. Trying to present these as like yes, exactly. easy solutions to a complex problem and one definitely. that is a big part of the sport that he played. Yes. Definitely, definitely. It'd be like if it was a a weight loss pill or a weight gain pill and I'm the spokesman for it. Like like the fact that Brett Favre is selling concussion medicine to people random people this isn't just like uh gold bond or 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 copper tone uh you know knee sleeve like we know that breast far might need that the concussion not nasal spray mike this is dirty Oh, yes, it it does. It feels vile. Like, all of this feels vile. And, uh, again, we talked so much the other day about process and listening to Jim Ursay at the press conference with the Colts really not have any semblance of a process. I encourage everyone to go read the ESPN report about this and listen to this Van Landingham person go and try and defend and explain and absolutely fail miserably in the process. So this is – and this is a good reminder that – Brett Favre, what he is doing is bad. Like we said, villain is starting to become a very applicable word to Brett Favre. We do not need to tie Brett Favre to Kyrie Irving. The whataboutism that we've seen some NBA players going to does not need to happen. Brett Favre does not have a boss that is a current league, a current professional team. For people that were saying, why hasn't he been forced to issue an apology? To who? The, like the public, like we're all condemning what right. Brett Favre has done and will continue to. The situations are different enough to where comparing them, I think, robs both of the severity that exists and that we need to address in each one. So let's not do that because we don't have to because we can say that Brett Favre and what he's doing is B-A-D, big-ass bad all by itself. Uh, yeah. Brandon, let's move yeah. on to things that are less bad here uh, and get to that. So we had midterm elections going on. Um, 
lots of that in the mix. And one tweet, as we got into uh, that midterm election eve, political Twitter and sports Twitter started to have the crossover that occurs when you have funny things like large, uh, you know, large uh, senators and congressmen and things of that nature. And then tweets like this uh, from Charlotte Alter, who's a senior correspondent at Time Magazine, who tweeted that Chuck Grassley, who was elected back into the Senate in Iowa, is 89 years old, will serve another six-year term in the Senate in Iowa. She said, and this is the tweet, quote, Chuck Grassley, 89, who was born before the invention of the chocolate chip cookie, will serve another six years in the Senate. And everyone had a good laugh at that one, Brandon. I saw our friends over at the Dan Levitard Show use that as the stat of the day. They have gone on to list a number of the other things that the 89-year-old Chuck Grassley is uh, older than and also point out that he is not the oldest um, sitting uh, member of the Senate as well. So all of those things were an objectively funny part of a night that has a lot of seriousness to it. But Brandon, I couldn't stop there. Decided to dig a little bit deeper here because I was interested. Like, oh, older than the chocolate chip cookie. Well, who invented the chocolate chip cookie? Went and did a little digging. Ended up finding finding this Mm. over at uh, eater.com. And I want to give credit to Claudia Geib who did the homework on this. Um, Brandon... The chocolate chip cookie and the date that was attributed here uh, for its invention was in the 1930s. And it was attributed to Ruth Wakefield, who was a part of the Toll House, original Toll House cookie, you know, folks there that became what we know today as Toll House. Yeah. And so Ruth Wakefield is credited for popularizing the chocolate chip cookie and developing the recipe that we know today. But as far as that particular date in the 30s, there's some people that dispute that. Stella Parks, who's a pastry chef and author of Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts, found newspaper ads from as far back as 1928, a decade before. So 1938 is that date sort of attributed, uh, describing chocolate chip cookies for sale. They also described that in the 1930s, they were in major supermarkets, regularly baking chocolate chips into cookies. And according to Parks, who did some of that research... A lot of the conversation around the chocolate chip cookie with Ruth Wakefield was, oh, this happened, you know, accidentally. She was in the kitchen and, you know, some chocolate chips managed to fall into the bat or any of these number of things. A lot of people around Ruth Wakefield said that's not how she got down. She was pretty exacting. She was pretty dialed into what she was doing in the kitchen, very purposeful. And so that didn't really line up with the Ruth Wakefield that they knew. The actual Mm. origin of the chocolate chip cookie itself may be a little more in line with just a little bit of laziness. Parks points out that it was much more likely that it came through as a variation of what was the popular drop cookie, the chocolate chumble, trumble, excuse me, the chocolate jumble. The jumble in some recipes called for up to two cups of chocolate shaved into the dough. And damn. That's hard. That's a lot of work. And so there was a thought that maybe at some point someone just decided to chop a chocolate bar up into small chips. And then the chocolate chip cookie was born out of that. And so maybe Chuck Grassley is actually older than the chocolate chip cookie. Or maybe the chocolate chip cookie is a little older than we gave it credit for and was a bit of a crime of laziness. Either way, uh, shout out to Claudia Guybe at Eater.com for doing the homework and getting us closer to what I think is the origin of the chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, Mike, but um, also shout out Ruth. Yeah, you know, I was going to say. Got to give her a mating name. 
Yeah, got a maiden name Graves, got Graves uh, Wakefield. I've been doing a lot of research while you've been talking about the research that you did. And died at 73, Mike, which seems really unfortunate and young, but maybe for someone who's born in 1903, it was a long life to live. Cause <laughs> but Honestly. I, I, just, I just wanted to make sure her her short demise wasn't tied you to think 73 the short? chip cookies. And maybe it was, maybe it was huh? You think 73 is short? What? Uh, for, for a lady, yes. Oh, man, I don't know. I I thought women, women, women live longer than men, don't but, they? But again, you talked about... Anyways, the, it seems like the chocolate, chip cook, the chocolate chip cookie may have kept her alive yeah, longer. We can't, we can't rule that out every time I see a person that's over the age of 100 on the news. They're always <laughs> like, I ate... I ate dirt or three Diet Cokes a day and chain smoke cigarettes, and I'm 120, and all my doctors are dead. So, yeah, yeah it's the yeah. it's the Alex Kirshner principle. Life is short. Eat at Arby's, um, and uh, eat chocolate chip cookies because uh, that's always cool too. Um, hey, yeah, talk about it. By the way, life expectancy for for women, 2022, 81.1 years old. So I'm saying she did pretty good considering she was alive and like kicking it during the 30s inventing chocolate or helping to yeah. continue to advance the agenda of chocolate chip cookies i don't i mean i can't imagine she's from like uh boston area i can't imagine how how hopping the boston area was in the 1920s in your 20s oh my god Especially if you're the person that's out here getting credit right? for inventing chocolate chip cookies like could you imagine someone who walks in and is like I mean, hey man listen I got something I want to show you. I've been in the lab, pen in the pad, trying to get this damn label off, and I think I've really found something. Matt, like honestly, walking. We talked about smells yesterday with Jess and Charlotte. Walking in any room in the twenties with with some everyone's hopped up on. I imagine some really from really potent cocaine, and like the smell of co chocolate chip cookies comes in. They're like, "What the fuck is that? Yeah, <laughs> am I high or does this smell great?" This might be the drugs. Who that? This this get her over here. This might be the drugs in the bathtub gin talking, but this is phenomenal. <laughs> oh, club! Uh, what's the what's the club in New York? We're gonna get off of this, but uh, club. It was like the 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 swingers club, like the all the celebrities were at in in New York. Is it club? Club seventy, club twenty three, club club, club twenty three was the but. small was the small dive bar in South Bend, Indiana <laughs> that used to serve frozen Long Island iced teas. So no, it was not Club twenty three. Also, by the it's way, shout, shout out to Ruth. Like I know this is a Levitard show bit, but we don't really make a lot of Ruths anymore. I think the last Ruth is going to end up being no. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Damn, we need to get we need to get we need to get up on that. I think I think somebody needs to be in charge. Studio Fifty Four is what I was talking about. That's the one. Um, I, that was 1977 to 1991, so that would not have been around. <laughs> I was just gonna uh, while say. Was cooking. <laughs> now I want to imagine <laughs> what it would be like taking those people from the 20s and putting them in Studio Fifty Four. You know what it is? It's the one that was the. Uh, it's the Cotton Club. We've all heard of that. The Cotton Club was around from 1923 to 1936. And yes, uh, I imagine it had some yeah. 
uh, negative inclinations around that. that but that makes me one. uncomfortable, uncomfortable, <laughs> uncomfortable. Well, it's really it's it's the Knickerbocker Club from the 1871s that make me uncomfortable. Yeah, nope. It's uh, it's all bad. And how we got from a conversation about cookies to people high on cocaine and <laughs> drinking bathtub gin in the Cotton Club being introduced to said cookies is the difference that you're Ooh. only going to get around here, uh, Brandon. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Let's get to the third. Um, So this was an interesting saga that happened yesterday where we had seen slow leaks about the NFL's head coaches being ranked as a part of a list based on the algorithm called the golden ratio. For anyone unfamiliar, there is a model that's built and designed to measure beauty based on the symmetry of a person's face. And the idea is the more symmetrical a face is, the more beautiful a person is supposed to be objectively considered to be, mathematically considered to be. Right. Um, I want to give a shout-out to Mike Tanier, who's a senior analyst in Football Outsiders. Apparently, this was sent around as a press release to members of the NFL media yesterday. Little hurt, uh, Papa NFL, that didn't make the list on that. I'm old-school verified, so you can trust me. Um, wow, yeah, no. But either way... That's, that's something you should have. Mike Tanier put this list out on Twitter for the people that weren't a part of that as the list of handsome NFL coaches ranked by the Golden Ratio app. And Brandon, I want to just give you the top five because the top five will tell you everything you need to know about how wild this list is. Number one on the list is Cliff Kingsbury. Unsurprising that any sort of objective measure would lead him to be a very handsomely considered person. Number two on this list is Brian yeah. Dable. Yes, appropriate facial okay. response. Okay, okay, listen, listen, yeah. listen. No, listen. We'll, 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 if we're we'll, talking we'll, about symmetry... We'll, we'll get, we'll, I want to get okay. to the, the top five, and then I'll let you react to that, because there's okay. even more shocking ones. Number three, Lovey Smith, who, you know what, I can understand that one. Lovey's got a great beard, um, all those things that can generally lead into this. A very symmetrical-looking face, so totally understand that. Four and five, and I'll even throw six in here. Andy Reid at number four. Okay. Frank Reich at number five, and Falcons head coach Arthur Smith okay. at six. So, so I have a I since we're okay, we're talking about it now. I don't have an issue with. I probably don't have an issue with one to five, but six throws it off for me because I don't think Arthur Smith's is Arthur Smith correct? Yeah. 
I don't believe his face. I don't believe his face is doing anything for anyone. Not even in the symmetrical conversation. All the rest of these people, I I think about one half of their face. I'm like, oh, and I see the other half of their face. I'm like, okay, right? Like I, I see that with everyone. Brian Dayball, I think, is a little bit different. I think they're they're definitely uh, favoriting the beards for sym- symmetry. Like if you have the same amount of length on one side, yeah. it may like kind of boost it the 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 reins of because. Andy Reid with that that mustache. And then I think Frank Reich, like, honestly, he's probably one of the more handsome coaches in the NFL, period. Obviously, he no longer is a coach in the NFL. Yeah. But up until last week, he was. I think Frank Reich was, like, handsome in the Mad Men era. Like, he seemed like he would have been really at home on that show. Mm. But John Hamm is still handsome. So he's he kind of gives me John Hamm vibes. I think John Hamm, more of that conversation is around, like, gray sweatpants season and the folklore surrounding that. But... Stop. No one's thinking about John Hamm's penis. I think a lot of people are thinking about John Hamm's penis. Um, The other ones that were surprising on here, like as far as like over under properly rated, Kyle Shanahan at seven properly rated, like, you know, looks like he could be on succession. Like all those things are pretty accurate in his description. Rob Sala, <laughs> Rob Sala at eleven seems a bit low given what the golden ratio seems to skew, which is especially for bald guys. Yes. It seems to help in the symmetry conversation because for guys like Matt Lafleur, who's all the way down at twenty three, I wonder how much of that is his hair being factored into this because the hair is not symmetrical. It's got the cool swoosh because he's got a cool eye haircut. And also, when it comes to symmetry, Mike, there's no way that thin ass. Chin strap is e- is even on both sides, or that thin ass mustache. No, but like he should not be below Nick Sirianni. Nick Sirianni and Pete Carroll tied at nineteen is also a huge mind fuck. Like I don't know how those two things are supposed to be the same, and I don't know who should feel weirder about that. Oh, Pete Carroll should be in the top ten. No, no, Pete Carroll looks. Uh, Pete, Pete Carroll, I think. Uh, Come on, Mike. I think the Levitard Show looks like game is done. Pete Carroll looks like an Eastern European grandmother before. All like very no one has saying a Eastern European grandmother isn't adorable. Well, adorable and objectively handsome are two different things. Although maybe it's not. The other one that I had a real big issue with was maybe it's not. Dan Campbell down at twenty five, and maybe this is just me bringing his physique into it. But he is grizzled in the ways that I appreciate. Mm, no, no, no. Because Dan Campbell has the face of an old European grandmother. like that, That's what I'm saying. Like I think Dan Campbell looks more like what they're trying to say Pete Carroll looks like. Because Pete Carroll's got that smile. And Dan Campbell has a scowl. And I think that is a, a big... Like, obviously, Lovey Smith isn't smiling a lot. Dayball, uh, Brian Dayball is smiling a lot. Cliff Kingsbury isn't smiling a lot. I don't know, man. This is... I, I want to see the, the back end. Because it seems like a hodgepodge. But I do think Andy Reid is, is an attractive young man. Uh, I do think Cliff Kingsbury is an attractive young man. I think Lovey Smith is an attractive young man. Lovey, you're calling uh, all these Frank Wright, grown just, old just coaches young men. Uh, at, Go- <laughs> at Gojo Show on Twitter, um, let us know who else is over, under, or properly rated on this list. Um, 
It's fascinating to look at here. The cutest coaches list. The cute, the cutest coaches list. Yes. Where Kevin O'Connell is somehow at thirty-two. Kevin O'Connell, who is like a delightful young lad. He's one of the younger coaches in the league. Very boyish. Like I don't understand yeah. how he wound up down at thirty-two and who he hurt as a part of this golden ratio process. So at Gojo Show on Twitter is where you can tell us which NFL coaches you think are objectively the most handsome based on your golden ratio. We hope that by any metric and any means, you think we're a handsome podcast and you enjoy hanging out with us. If you did, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, review, Gojo, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. And also make sure you check us out on the DraftKings YouTube channel, where you can see our page under the Gojo with Michael Jr. playlist and see things like Marcus Freeman, who is an objectively handsome head coach in the world of college football, live and living color on our YouTube page. Thanks so much. Enjoy Thursday Night Football. We'll talk to you tomorrow.